Chapter forty six of Lorna Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lorna Doone by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter forty six. Squire Faggus makes some lucky hits. Through that season of bitter frost, the red deer of the forest, having nothing to feed upon, and no shelter to rest in, had grown accustomed to our ricks of corn and hay and clover. There we might see a hundred of them, almost any morning, come for warmth and food and comfort, and scarce willing to move away. And many of them were so tame that they quietly presented themselves at our back door, and stood there with their coats quite stiff and their flanks drawn in and panting, and icicles sometimes on their chins, and their great eyes fastened wistfully upon any merciful person craving for a bit of food and a drink of water. I suppose that they had not sense enough to chew the snow and melt it, at any rate all the springs being frozen and rivers hidden out of sight, these poor things suffered even more from thirst than they did from hunger. But now there was no fear of thirst, and more chance indeed of drowning, for a heavy gale of wind arose with violent rain from the south-west, which lasted almost without a pause for three nights and two days. At first the rain made no impression on the bulk of snow, but ran from every sloping surface, and froze on every flat one through the coldness of the earth, and so it became impossible for any man to keep his legs without the help of a shodden staff. After a good while, however, the air growing very much warmer, this state of things began to change, and a worse one to succeed it, for now the snow came thundering down from roof and rock and ivied tree, and floods began to roar and foam in every trough and gully. The drift, which had been so white and fair, looked yellow and smirched and muddy, and lost their graceful curves, and moulded lines and airiness. But the strangest sight of all to me was in the bed of streams and brooks, and especially of the Lynn River. It was worth going miles to behold such a thing, for a man might never have the chance again. Vast drifts of snow had filled the valley, and piled above the river course fifty feet high in many places, and in some as much as a hundred. These had frozen over the top, and glanced the rain away from them, and being sustained by rock and tree, spanned the water mightily. But meanwhile the waxing flood, swollen from every moorland hollow, and from every spouting crag, had dashed away all icy fetters, and was rolling gloriously. Under white fantastic arches and long tunnels freaked and fretted, and between pellucid pillars jagged with nodding architraves, the red impetuous torrent rushed, and the brown foam whirled and flashed. I was half inclined to jump in and swim through such glorious scenery, for nothing used to please me more than swimming in a flooded river. But I thought of the rocks, and I thought of the cramp, and more than all of Lorna, and so between one thing and another I let it roll on without me. It was now high time to work very hard, both to make up for the farm work lost during the months of frost and snow, and also to be ready for a great and vicious attack from the dunes who would burn us in our beds at the earliest opportunity. Of farm work there was little yet for even the most zealous man to begin to lay his hand to, because when the ground appeared through the crust of bubbled snow, as at last it did, though not as my Lorna had expected at the first few drops of rain, it was all so soaked and sodden, and as we call it, muxy, that to meddle with it in any way was to do more harm than good. Nevertheless there was yard work and housework, and tendance of stock enough to save any man from idleness. As for Lorna, she would come out. There was no keeping her in the house. She had taken up some peculiar notion that we were doing more for her than she had any right to, 
and that she must earn her living by the hard work of her hands. It was quite in vain to tell her that she was expected to do nothing, and far worse than vain, for it made her cry sadly, if any one assured her that she could do no good at all. She even began upon Mother's garden, before the snow was clean gone from it, and sowed a beautiful row of peas, every one of which the mice ate. But though it was very pretty to watch her working for her very life, as if the maintenance of the household hung upon her labours, yet I was grieved for many reasons, and so was Mother also. In the first place, she was too fair and dainty for this rough, rude work, and though it made her cheeks so bright, it surely must be bad for her to get her little feet so wet. Moreover, we could not bear the idea that she should labour for her keep, and again, which was the worst of all things, Mother's garden lay exposed to a dark, deceitful coppice, where a man might lurk and watch all the fair gardener's doings. It was true that none could get at her thence, while the brook which ran between poured so great a torrent. Still, the distance was but little for a gun to carry, if any one could be brutal enough to point a gun at Lorna. I thought that none could be found to do it, but Mother, having more experience, was not so certain of mankind. Now, in spite of the floods and the sloughs being out, and the state of the roads most perilous, Squire Faggus came at last, riding his famous strawberry mare. There was a great ado between him and Annie, as you may well suppose, after some four months of parting, and so we left them alone a while, to coddle over their raptures. But when they were tired of that, or at least had time enough to be so, Mother and I went in, to know what news Tom had brought with him. Though he did not seem to want us yet, he made himself agreeable, and so we sent Annie to cook the dinner, while her sweetheart should tell us everything. Tom Faggus had very good news to tell, and he told it with such force of expression as made us laugh very heartily. He had taken up his purchase from old Sir Roger Bassett of a nice bit of land to the south of the moors and in the parish of Molland. When the lawyers knew thoroughly who he was and how he had made his money, they behaved uncommonly well to him, and showed great sympathy with his pursuits. He put them up to a thing or two, and they poked him in the ribs and laughed and said that he was quite a boy, but of the right sort none the less. And so they made old Squire Bassett pay the bill for both sides, and all he got for three hundred acres was a hundred and twenty pounds, though Tom had paid five hundred. But lawyers know that this must be so, in spite of all their endeavours, and the old gentleman, who now expected to find a bill for him to pay, almost thought himself a rogue for getting anything out of them. It is true that the land was poor and wild, and the soil exceeding shallow, lying on the slope of rock and burned up in hot summers. But with us, hot summers are things known by tradition only, as this great winter may be. We generally have more moisture, especially in July, than we well know what to do with. I have known a fog for a fortnight at the summer solstice, and farmers talking in church about it when they ought to be praying but it always contrives to come right in the end, as other visitations do if we take them as true visits and receive them kindly. Now this farm of Squire Faggus, as he truly now had a right to be called, was of the very finest pasture when it got good store of rain, and Tom, who had ridden the Devonshire roads with many a reeking jacket, knew right well that he might trust the climate for that matter. The herbage was of the very sweetest and the shortest and the closest, having perhaps from ten to eighteen inches of wholesome soil between it and the solid rock, Tom saw at once what it was fit for, the breeding of fine cattle. Being such a hand as he was at making the most of everything, both his own and other people's, although so free and scattering when the humour lay upon him, he had actually turned to his own advantage that extraordinary weather, which had so impoverished everyone around him. 
for he taught his whinny, who knew his meaning as well as any child could, and obeyed not only his word of mouth, but every glance he gave her. To go forth in the snowy evenings, when horses are seeking everywhere, be they wild or tame, for fodder and for shelter, and to whinny to the forest ponies, miles away from home perhaps, and lead them all, with rare appetite and promise of abundance, to her master's homestead. He showed good whinny in such a manner that she could not sink in the snow, and he clad her over the loins with a sheepskin, dyed to her own colour, which the wild horses never tired of coming up and sniffing at, taking it for an especial gift and proof of inspiration. And Winnie never came home at night without at least a score of ponies trotting shyly after her, tossing their heads and their tails in turn, and making believe to be very wild, although hard-pinched by Furman. Of course, Tom would get them all into his pound in about five minutes, for he himself could neigh in a manner which went to the heart of the wildest horse. And then he fed them well, and turned them into his great cattle-pen to abide their time for breaking, when the snow and frost should be over. He had gotten more than three hundred now, in this sagacious manner, and he said it was the finest sight to see their mode of carrying on. How they would snort and stamp and fume and prick their ears and rush backwards and lash themselves with their long rough tails and shake their jagged manes and scream and fall upon one another if a strange man came anigh them. But as for feeding time, Tom said it was better than fifty plays to watch them and the tricks they were up to, to cheat their feeders and one another. I asked him how on earth he had managed to get fodder in such impassable weather for such a herd of horses, but he said that they lived upon straw and sawdust and he knew that I did not believe him any more than about his star-shavings. And this was just the thing he loved, to mystify honest people, and be a great deal too knowing. However, I may judge him harshly, because I myself tell everything. I asked him what he meant to do with all that enormous lot of horses, and why he had not exerted his wits to catch the red deer as well. He said that the latter would have been against the laws of venery, and might have brought him into trouble, but as for disposing of his stud, it would give him little difficulty. He would break them when the spring weather came on, and deal with them as they required, and keep the handsomest for breeding. The rest he would dispatch to London, where he knew plenty of horse-dealers, and he doubted not that they would fetch him as much as ten pounds apiece all round, being now in great demand. I told him I wished that he might get it, but as it proved afterwards, he did. Then he pressed us both on another point, the time for his marriage to Annie, and mother looked at me to say when, and I looked back at mother. However, knowing something of the world, and unable to make any further objections by reason of his prosperity, I said that we must even do as the fashionable people did, and allow the maid herself to settle when she would leave home and all. And this I spoke with a very bad grace, being perhaps of an ancient caste and over-fond of honesty, I mean, of course, among lower people. But Tom paid little heed to this, knowing the world a great deal better than ever I could pretend to do, and being ready to take a thing, upon which he had set his mind, whether it came with a good grace, or whether it came with a bad one, and seeing that it would be awkward to provoke my anger, he left the room before more words to submit himself to Annie. Upon this, I went in search of Lorna, to tell her of our cousin's arrival, and to ask whether she would think fit to see him, or to dine by herself that day, for she should do exactly as it pleased her in everything, while remaining still our guest but I rather wished that she might choose not to sit in Tom's company, though she might be introduced to him, not but what he could behave quite as well as I could, and much better as regarded elegance and assurance, only that his honesty had not been as one might desire. But Lorna had some curiosity to know what this famous man was like, 
and declared that she would by all means have the pleasure of dining with him, if he did not object to her company, on the ground of the Doones' dishonesty. Moreover, she said that it would seem a most foolish air on her part, and one which would cause the greatest pain to Annie, who had been so good to her, if she should refuse to sit at a table with a man who held the king's pardon, and was now a pattern of honesty. Against this I had not a word to say, and could not help acknowledging in my heart that she was right, as well as wise in her decision. And afterwards I discovered that mother would have been much displeased if she had decided otherwise. Accordingly she turned away, with one of her very sweetest smiles, whose beauty none can describe, saying that she must not meet a man of such fashion and renown in her common gardening frock, but must try to look as nice as she could, if only in honour of dear Annie. And truth to tell, when she came to dinner, everything about her was the neatest and the prettiest that can possibly be imagined. She contrived to match the colours so, to suit one another and her own, and yet with a certain delicate harmony of contrast, and the shape of everything was so nice, that when she came into the room with a crown of winning modesty, upon the consciousness of beauty, I was quite as proud as if the Queen of England entered. My mother could not help remarking, though she knew that it was not mannerly, how like a princess Lorna looked, now she had her best things on. But two things caught Squire Faggus's eyes, after he had made a most gallant bow, and had received a most graceful curtsy, and he kept his bright, bold gaze upon them, first on one, and then on the other, until my darling was hot with blushes, and I was ready to knock him down, if he had not been our visitor. But here again I should have been wrong, as I was apt to be in those days, for Tom intended no harm whatever, and his gaze was of pure curiosity, though Annie herself was vexed with it. The two objects of his close regard were, first, and most worthily, Lorna's face, and secondly, the ancient necklace restored to her by Sir Anser Doone. Now, wishing to save my darling's comfort, and to keep things quiet, I shouted out that dinner was ready so that half the parish could hear me, upon which my mother laughed and chid me, and dispatched her guests before her. And a very good dinner we made, I remember, and a very happy one, attending to the women first, as now is the manner of eating, except among the workmen. With them, of course, it is needful that the man, who has his hours fixed, should be served first, and make the utmost of his time for feeding, while the women may go on as much as ever they please afterwards. But with us, who are not bound to time, there is no such reason to be quoted, and the women being the weaker vessels, should be the first to begin to fill and so we always arranged it. Now, though our Annie was a graceful maid, and Lizzie a very learned one, you should have seen how differently Lorna managed her dining. She never took more than about a quarter of a mouthful at a time, and she never appeared to be chewing that, although she must have done so. Indeed, she appeared to dine as if it were a matter of no consequence, and as if she could think of other things more than of her business. All this, and her own manner of eating, I described to Eliza once, when I wanted to vex her for something very spiteful that she had said, and I never succeeded so well before, for the girl was quite outrageous, having her own perception of it, which made my observation ten times as bitter to her. And I am not sure but what she ceased to like poor Lorna from that day, and if so, I was quite paid out as I well deserved for my bit of satire for it strikes me that of all human dealings, satire is the very lowest and most mean and common. It is the equivalent in words for what bullying is in deeds, and no more bespeaks a clever man than the other does a brave one. These two wretched tricks exalt a fool in his own low esteem, but never in his neighbour's, for the deep common sense of our nature tells that no man of a genial heart or of any spread of mind can take pride in either. 
and though a good man may commit the one fault or the other now and then by way of outlet, he is sure to have compunctions soon, and to scorn himself more than the sufferer. Now when the young maidens were gone, for we had quite a high dinner of fashion that day, with Betty Muxworthy waiting, and Gwenny Carfax at the gravy, and only mother and Tom and I remained at the white deal table with brandy and schnapps and hot water jugs, Squire Faggus said quite suddenly, and perhaps on purpose to take us aback in case of our hiding anything, "'What do you know of the history of that beautiful maiden, good mother?' "'Not half so much as my son does,' mother answered with a soft smile at me. "'And when John does not choose to tell a thing, wild horses will not pull it out of him.' "'That is not at all like me, mother,' I replied rather sadly. "'You know almost every word about Lorna quite as well as I do.' "'Almost every word, I believe, John, for you never tell a falsehood. "'But the few unknown may be of all the most important to me.' To this I made no answer, for fear of going beyond the truth, or else of making mischief. Not that I had, or wished to have, any mystery with mother, neither was there in purest truth any mystery in the matter to the utmost of my knowledge, and the only things that I had kept back, solely for mother's comfort, were the death of poor Lord Alan Brandier, if indeed he were dead, and the connection of Marwood de Wickerhauser with the dealings of the Doones and the threats of Carver Doone against my own prosperity and, maybe, one or two little things, harrowing more than edifying. "'Come, come,' said Master Faggus, smiling very pleasantly. "'You two understand each other if any two on earth do. Ah, if I had only had a mother, how different I might have been!' And with that he sighed, in the tone which always overcame mother upon that subject, and had something to do with his getting any. And then he produced his pretty box, full of rolled tobacco, and offered me one, as I now had joined the goodly company of smokers. So I took it, and watched what he did with his own, lest I might go wrong with mine. But when our cylinders were both lighted, and I enjoying mine wonderfully, and astonishing mother by my skill, Tom Faggus told us that he was sure he had seen my Lorna's face before, many and many years ago, when she was quite a little child. But he could not remember where it was, or anything more about it at present, though he would try to do so afterwards. He could not be mistaken, he said, for he had noticed her eyes especially, and had never seen such eyes before, neither again, until this day. I asked him if he had ever ventured into the Dune Valley, but he shook his head, and replied that he valued his life a deal too much for that. Then we put it to him whether anything might assist his memory, but he said that he knew not of aught to do so, unless it were another glass of schnapps. This being provided, he grew very wise, and told us clearly and candidly that we were both very foolish. For he said that we were keeping Lorna at the risk not only of our stock and the house above our heads, but also of our precious lives, and after all, was she worth it, although so very beautiful? Upon which I told him, with indignation, that her beauty was the least part of her goodness, and that I would thank him for his opinion when I had requested it. "'Bravo, our John Ridd,' he answered. "'Fools will be fools till the end of the chapter, "'and I might be as big a one if I were in thy shoes, John. "'Nevertheless, in the name of God, "'don't let that helpless child go about "'with a thing worth half the county on her.' "'She is worth all the county herself,' said I, "'and all England put together, "'but she has nothing worth half a rick of hay upon her "'for the ring I gave her cost only.' "'And here I stopped, for mother was looking, "'and I never would tell her how much it had cost me.' though she had tried fifty times to find out. "'Tush! the ring!' Tom Fergus cried, with a contempt that moved me. "'I would never have stopped a man for that. 
"'But the necklace, you great oaf, the necklace is worth all your farm put together "'and your Uncle Ben's fortune to the back of it, I and all the town of Dalberton.' "'What?' said I, "'that common glass thing which he has had from her childhood.' "'Glass, indeed! They are the finest brilliants ever I set eyes on, and I have handled a good many.' "'Surely,' cried Mother, now flushing as red as Tom's own cheeks with excitement, "'you must be wrong, as a young mistress would herself have known it.' I was greatly pleased with my mother for calling Lorna the young mistress. It was not done for the sake of her diamonds, whether they were glass or not, but because she felt, as I had done, that Tom Faggus, a man of no birth whatever, was speaking beyond his mark in calling a lady like Lorna a helpless child, as well as in his general tone which displayed no deference. He might have been used to the quality, in the way of stopping their coaches, or roistering at hotels with them, but he never had met a high lady before in equality, and upon virtue, and we both felt that he ought to have known it, and to have thanked us for the opportunity, in a word, to have behaved a great deal more humbly than he had even tried to do. "'Trust me,' answered Tom, in his loftiest manner, which Annie said was so noble, but which seemed to me rather flashy. "'Trust me, good mother, and simple John, for knowing brilliance when I see them.' I would have stopped an eight-horse coach with four carabined outriders for such a booty as that. But alas, those days are over. Those were days worth living in. Ah, oh, I never shall know the like again. How fine it was by moonlight. Master Faggus, began my mother, with a manner of some dignity, such as she could sometimes use by right of her integrity, and thorough kindness to every one. That is not the tone in which you have hitherto spoken to me about your former pursuits in life, I fear that the spirits, but here she stopped, because the spirits were her own, and Tom was our visitor. What I mean, Master Faggus, is this. You have won my daughter's heart somehow, and you won my consent to the matter, through your honest sorrow and manly undertaking to lead a different life, and touch no property but your own. Annie is my eldest daughter, and the child of a most upright man. I love her best of all on earth, next to my boy John here, here mother gave me a mighty squeeze to be sure that she would have me at least, and I will not risk my Annie's life with a man who yearns for the highway. Having made this very long speech for her, mother came home upon my shoulder, and wept so that, but for heeding her, I would have taken Tom by the nose and thrown him and Winnie after him over our farmyard gate, for I am violent when roused, and freely hereby acknowledge it, that even my enemies will own that it takes a great deal to rouse me, but I do consider the grief and tears, when justly caused, of my dearest friend, to be a great deal to rouse me. End of chapter 46 Read by Landy in Sydney, Australia, October 2008